New Year, new podcast. No, no, just kidding. Still the same old people are wild with me, Kim, your host with the most-ish. Your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host here in the brand new year, and also here to give you claps and kudos and so many accolades to all of you for sticking with this podcast for a year. Yeah, it's been a whole year since I started this. I can't believe it. Maybe you can't believe it either. Medutainment is real. And if the Princess Diaries taught me anything, it's that miracles happen when you believe. So I want to give you all my sincerest and utmost thanks for listening and recommending this podcast. Also, due to my current work schedule and, well, okay, I'll be real with everybody, life in general, I'm going to be going to an every other week sort of release, so like a bi-weekly sort of thing. Now, is this permanent? Mm, We'll see. Also, here is my new year, new you challenge, if you will. You don't have to go on Instagram per se for this. So if you follow me on Twitter, I hinted to this, but for those that don't follow, no worries. Here's my challenge to all of you listening. Go and get CPR certified and slash or take a Stop the Bleed course. Now, if you do either of these things, email or tweet me with your completion certification, and I will send you some sweet show swag. Say that five times fast. Easy as that, though. My way of saying thank you for empowering you, yourself, to be a lifesaver in your community. And that's exactly what you are with either or both of those trainings in your back pocket. You're a lifesaver, so get used to it. Now take the challenge and get your pals involved, too. It makes a better world when there are more people that can enact bystander CPR in life-threatening situations. Now, I have a feeling that I have a show to get on with, so allow me to light my Kevin Sorbo prayer candle, which does not smell like disappointment. And now that I have listened to Faith Hill's Breathe on a loop repeat for about an hour, I would say that I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Now, it's no secret that you see unbelievable things working in healthcare. I've seen many things that no person will ever see, and it's led me to start thinking to myself what it would be like to experience some of the interventions I've had to perform or helped in performing in order to save someone's life or limb. So what does it feel like to have a conscious sedation in order to reduce a broken bone? What does it feel like when your bleeding is uncontrolled and you start going into shock? What does it feel like to be left breathless and a doctor is telling you that they're going to put a tube down your throat to get your breathing stabilized? And while those first two questions are something I intend to cover in the future, that's called a tease, everyone. It's the last question that really brings us this episode that you're listening to right now. If there's one thing that was apparent from the second she arrived to the emergency department, it was that Chloe Anders arrived in just the nick of time. Chloe was an active 24-year-old who loved to be outside. Her parents took her out for hikes from before she could even walk, it seemed like, and as far back as she could remember, the outdoors were a place of solace and tranquility for her. For Chloe, being outside was like coming home, but for Chloe's lungs, sometimes being outside could spell disaster. She had asthma, and while it was more troublesome for her when she was a teenager, she had done a pretty stellar job with keeping her passion of the outdoors and her necessity to breathe in balance. Now that balance, though, was severely thrown off in a sudden manner when she started having difficulty breathing on a hike that she had done numerous times before. 
It was right around the changing of the seasons, and Chloe knew she might want to take it easy, especially because she had been battling some sort of respiratory illness or virus that had been circulating around the incubator that was her workplace. But she simply couldn't resist finally being able to go and hike on her favorite trail in the springtime. She was out with her dad on that particular afternoon when everything started to go downhill. She always carried her rescue inhaler, but for whatever reason, that morning she decided to leave it out of her pack. Such is life that it always seems to be that whenever the one time you don't stick to your routine is the one time you wished you did. As Chloe was turning towards the final ascent to the summit, her breathing was becoming severely labored. But she didn't want to stop. Her dad, though, made the quick and executive decision to turn around on the trail and got them both down to the trailhead safely before loading Chloe into the car to get them to the hospital. Chloe had gone from being able to talk in short sentences to only being able to say yes or no during that whole entire time that they were descending. Her dad was trying his best to keep her calm and himself calm while keeping his eyes on the road. Now, they had been out of cell range for quite some time, so even calling an ambulance to meet them seemed impractical at this point. It seemed like forever as Chloe tried to keep herself relatively calm while also feeling like every inhale was strained. She was suffocating. She was beginning to panic. They got to the emergency department, her father carrying her into the entrance. He didn't have to ask for help. He didn't have to yell at anyone. The staff in the registration area took one look at Chloe's state and rushed her back to her room immediately. Things were a blur for her as she was told what various staff members were doing. They were getting her into a hospital gown while placing her on monitors for her heart, blood pressure, oxygen saturation. Another staff member was starting an IV on her. There was someone else putting some sort of mask over her face to give her oxygen. She was still feeling like she was choking, her breathing becoming more labored, and she was getting tired but also panicking. It was a strange sensation to be physically exhausted but wholly terrified at the same time. She kept looking to her father, who could only nod his head as staff was attending to Chloe. The ER physician came in soon, accompanied by a few machines being wheeled in behind her in a quick stride. The doctor explained to Chloe that she would need a breathing tube placed down into her throat to help her to actually breathe. On one hand, she was terrified of this prospect, but on the other hand, she wasn't doing great on that whole breathing thing. The doctor then told Chloe that she would be given a medication through her IV that would sedate and relax her before the tube was to be placed. She wouldn't remember the actual procedure itself. And just like that, the medication was administered through her line, and she went to sleep. Chloe didn't know how long she was out of it for, but when she woke up, the first thing she remembered thinking was that her butt hurt. It was sore, like she had been laying down for quite some time, and... Everything else in her body seemed to be pretty sore, too. With her senses slowly coming back to her a bit more, it didn't take long for her to know why she felt so sore. She felt like she had something caught in her throat, like she couldn't clear it properly for some reason. Trying to make sense of her situation and getting her bearings and figuring out what was going on was a hazy task. Her mind felt unusually foggy, but then a voice broke through. Hey, kiddo. That was the voice of her father. She recognized it on where he was in relation to where she was. She saw him right in front of her as he moved a bit to be able to see her face to face. He started speaking to her again. 
You gave us a bit of a startle. Your breathing wasn't doing so good, so they had to put that tube in to help you out. Your mom's coming as soon as she can, and you're going to be fine. I'm going to be right here, okay? I love you, kid. Now, her mind was still hazy, but she felt her dad squeeze her right hand in reassurance. She also felt that tube that was in her throat. It was as if she had swallowed something, but it went down the wrong pipe. Now, instinctively, she wanted to cough and tried to actually draw her hand up to do so, but it was gently held and redirected down to her side by her father. He repeated what he had said before about the tube staying in for now to help her breathe, but Chloe still wanted to cough or do something to clear her throat. And it was then that she noticed a nurse by her bedside who had come into the room. This nurse told Chloe that the tube had to stay in for now, that she had an asthma attack and needed to get medicine for the respiratory infection that might have set off the attack, along with a lot of other things going on yesterday. The nurse asked her yes or no questions regarding her comfort level. The nurse adjusted some medication that made Chloe more drowsy before she received some pain medicine to help her with some of the discomfort that Chloe was experiencing. Chloe remembered falling asleep not too long after that medication was administered. Getting a paper cut between the webbing of your fingers and then stubbing your pinky toe on the way to the bathroom to clean out said paper cut is something Chloe would eagerly trade for instead of getting tube suctioning. See, that's the parts they never show you on shows like House or, I don't know, The Resident, maybe New Amsterdam? I don't really watch those. It's the whole deep suctioning part of being intubated. McDreamy didn't have to die from poorly executed intubation and deep suctioning is not glamorous. Those are the two truths I know from the zero episodes of Grey's Anatomy I've ever never watched. So think about when you cough up gunk, which is a technical medical term, yes indeed, when you've got some sort of respiratory illness or infection. And sometimes you get caught in the loop where you try to keep clearing your throat and it's just hacking up this like phlegm and mucus and your face starts to get red and you're kind of crying and wondering why your lungs hate you right now. Now imagine though having a tube in your throat and that gunk is still present in your respiratory system. Luckily though, you've got nurses and respiratory therapists who are on it. They've trained for this. They've got this. And I will just come out and say this as a nurse, I hate deep suctioning people. There, I said it again, I think. I know I've probably declared this before, but it bears repeating. It looks awful for patients when you're doing it, but it is necessary in letting lungs recover from an illness. So, in Chloe's case, she begrudgingly tolerated this procedure. She already felt like pulling out the damn tube herself, but now there was a one-two combo of that sensation in her throat with the sensation that she was drowning in her own lung butter. Okay, sorry, full circle. From the first time I talked with my respiratory therapist pal, Amanda, from like an episode last year with the lung butter. Mm, We're bringing that back. 2019. New year, new lung butter. Just kidding. Secretions suck, so suck them out. Anyone who has been congested knows what it's like to feel like you're suffocating in your own secretions. So in Chloe's case, she couldn't clear her throat. Coughing also was kind of complicated and seemingly impossible, even though her gag and cough reflexes were full-on activated. Now with a deep suction pass, it was miserable, but helped her to breathe easier once again. It just felt like Chloe's innards were also being sucked out through that suction catheter. That catheter is a tube that is small enough to pass into the intubation tube and down into the lung region. It's hooked up to suction, and 
As healthcare providers, you make sure to seal that suction off when threading the catheter down into through the tube. Then you switch it into the on position when you're withdrawing that suction tube out. Patients hate it. They tear up, they get red-faced, they try to cough, they try to bat us away. But if you do a couple passes and remove these secretions, patients feel better because those secretions are now out of their lungs. It's a good thing, like Martha Stewart would say. That cough and gag reflex passes a little bit and the lungs can continue to recover. So in Chloe's case, it was two days before she was sitting up, fully awake, in the intensive care unit, the ICU, with a respiratory therapist telling her how they were going to approach taking out the breathing tube. Chloe had recovered enough that she did well on her trial runs of breathing on her own. Now this might be the point in the episode where you go, hold up, hang on, hang on, hang on, press pause. How could she be breathing on her own with a breathing tube in place? Well, thanks to the wonderful world of ventilators and vent settings, you can adjust things based off of a patient's responses and needs for oxygenation maintenance. One of the modes that you can do for your ventilators is to put it into this uh, this mode that allows people to breathe unassisted, but also has breaths that are provided for them. So you can think of it as a backup generator of sorts if all of a sudden that patient's lungs power go out when they're trying to breathe independently. It's like a it's like a plan B. It's like a failsafe. It's a safety net of sorts. Now, the better Chloe did on her own, the greater her chances of getting that tube out increased. So by this particular morning, after two days of being intubated, it was the time to approach extubation, which is the process by which a patient gets their breathing tube taken out. Now, with her parents by her side and the nurse and respiratory therapist telling her what to expect in this process, they began the removal of the tube. Now, first was the suctioning. And it was the last time she would have to experience it forever. At least Chloe hoped. It was miserable like always, but at least after this time, this tube wasn't going to stay in. Now, the respiratory therapist did what they had to do. And before she knew it, Chloe's tube was quickly removed. And the nurse put on a simple mask on her face that covered her nose and mouth that was giving her oxygen as Chloe intermittently coughed and attempted to clear her throat. See, it felt like she had thrown up the tube when it was taken out, like an exorcism of her lungs. I don't know. Maybe. Probably. And while she had a hella sore throat and somewhat hoarse voice, she was glad to be able to breathe fully and completely on her own. It was a complete 180 from what had happened two days prior when she had been carried in by her father. Being able to breathe independently was certainly something Chloe would never take for granted again. A day later, she was cleared to go home, and after doing follow-ups with her doctor's outpatient, she eventually was cleared to resume her normal activities. Now, never too far away from her, since that experience is her rescue inhaler, as well as an appreciation for being able to do the simple things in her life once again. So let's talk about what intubation really is, and why it makes healthcare providers a little bit upset to see it portrayed so poorly on TV shows. Looking right at you, Hallmark and Lifetime movies. So gathering data and info from a really great resource written by Jennifer Whitlock, who is a board-certified family nurse practitioner that also works in intensive care unit settings, she describes intubation in a way that is better than I ever could, so I definitely used a lot of her own words as a template for what I want to impart upon you guys. So let's get into it. Intubation is the process of inserting a tube, which is called an endotracheal ET tube, 
through the mouth, and then into the airway. So it goes into the lungs, not the stomach. That's for another tube to deal with. Much like apps, there's a tube for that, it seems like. Maybe not. Just put a tube in it. If there's a hole, put a tube in it. Never mind. Let's just, yeah, moving on. Intubation is performed so that a patient can be placed on a ventilator to assist with breathing during anesthesia, sedation, or severe illness. The tube is then connected to a ventilator, which pushes air into the lungs to deliver a breath to the patient. Now, we get spoiled in that we have amazing respiratory therapists who monitor and help with maintaining ventilators for patients. Working in the ER, we usually initiate the process that results in intubation for a patient. So this means that respiratory therapists are right there next to the patient at the head of the bed when intubation is actually occurring in real time. And this is so they can coordinate the ventilator settings to be tailored to that patient's needs. So intubation is done because the patient cannot maintain their airway, cannot breathe on their own without assistance, or both. Now this may be because they are being given anesthesia and will be unable to breathe on their own during surgery, or they may be too sick or injured to provide enough oxygen to the body without assistance, which is what happened in Chloe's case. Now prior to intubation, there are a few things that happen. The patient is typically sedated or not conscious due to illness or injury, which allows the mouth and airway to relax. The patient is typically flat on their back and the person inserting the tube is standing at the head of the bed looking at the patient's feet. Now the patient's mouth is gently opened and using a lighted instrument to keep the tongue out of the way and to light the throat, something called a laryngoscope, the tube is gently guided into the throat and advanced into the airway. Now there's a small balloon around the tube that is inflated to hold the tube in place and to keep air from escaping. It creates the seal, an anchor to the tube, if you will. Now, once this balloon is inflated, the tube is securely positioned in the airway and it is tied or taped in place at the mouth. Successful placement is checked first by listening to the lungs with a stethoscope and often immediately verified with a chest x-ray. Now, in the field, such as when 911 is activated and a breathing tube is placed by paramedics, a special device is used in the field that changes color when the tube is placed correctly. And trust me, when those patients come into the ER, we definitely do immediate verification by x-ray. Not that we don't trust any paramedics, they are very much highly trained in it, but verification and confirmation gives you a lot of relaxation. Now, while most surgery is very low risk and intubation equally low risk, there are some potential issues that can arise, particularly when a patient must remain on a ventilator for an extended period of time. Now, these common risks can include trauma to the teeth, mouth, tongue, and or larynx, which is your vocal cords, accidental intubation into the esophagus, your food tube, instead of the trachea, you know, your air tube. So if it goes into your stomach area, that's not good. Uh, if you try and do anything with that, sometimes that means the person's going to throw up and that's really not good. It's a whole mess and it's just a mess. Trauma to the trachea can also complicate things in terms of intubation. Bleeding in general can make a complication or can cause a complication to get worse. An inability to be weaned from the ventilator can mean that instead of using your endotracheal tube, they'll actually resort to a tracheostomy, which is when people have 
the hole in their throat, if you will. You can't really do prolonged ventilator treatment for people with an ET tube. It just, it's not the safest thing. It's not the best practice is what the science shows. So that is a risk also of being on a ventilator, of being intubated, as well as aspirating or inhaling vomit, saliva, or other fluids while intubated. So I feel like in Hollywood and in TV shows, even when they show an intubation process, they really don't show it too well. You need to watch shows that are like the real life med or like Boston med, or I think there was a New York med, whatever they used to have on ABC for their summer shows. If you watch shows like that, you can see kind of how messy it can be and how hard it can be and difficult it can be to actually intubate people in real life. When you watch TV shows, it looks so easy and it really is rarely that easy because there's a lot of other stuff going Going on usually in that patient that precedes them getting intubated. So rarely does it go super, super quick, super easy. Sometimes it does and everybody always stands back and they're like, oh, okay, that was great. Let's get the x-ray in. Let's verify everything. Let's get this person more stabilized. But a lot of times there's a lot of controlled chaos preceding the actual intubation. So it's not uncommon for people to, for patients that are needing to get a breathing tube placed in to start vomiting. That's happened numerous times where you definitely walk out of that patient's room going, okay, I think I'm going to have to change out my scrubs for a little bit. But you know what? At the end of the day, if your patient's stabilized and they are in a better place or towards a place of recovery, you're doing a good job. That's all you want to do in healthcare, right? Is to help heal people or at least help them to feel more comfortable in wherever their prognosis is going. So, and then another complication we talked about before, touched on it a little bit with Chloe's case, is sore throat, is hoarseness. It normally does not last long term, but for some people, depending on how often they have to get intubated, which is a whole nother thing in terms of, especially when people have really bad asthma or um, seizures and they can't protect their own airway, and they end up needing to be intubated fairly regularly, that can cause some permanent damage to their vocal cords. So hoarseness can actually become something that's a little bit more permanent. And in fact, now that I bring this up, I have a pal who had a traumatic intubation years ago that resulted in trauma to their vocal cords. And to this day, they have a, a hoarse voice, it, not like a horse, not like Mr. Ed, like just the hoarseness of their voice. But to this day, they actually have to get uh, annual procedures to help to dilate their windpipe, their trachea, and they're on a high dose steroid long term to help maintain the openness of that airway. But they're a badass. They've got dealt a really crappy hand while undergoing a routine orthopedic procedure, but they completely retooled their passions to match with their breathing capabilities. So it has not stopped my friend from doing a lot of trips and, and doing outdoor things and, and finding fulfillment in their life, which is amazing because they could easily have just said, nope, close up shop, we're done. But I just always thought, and I've told that to them, it just, it must have sucked to wake up from a surgery and realize that something went wrong that didn't have anything to do with why you originally had to have that procedure. And they said that initially they were angry at what happened and frustrated, but now that's their life. And they are going on to do the things that 
give them joy and fulfillment, even if it wasn't necessarily what they originally thought they would be. So every surgery runs complications, you run risks in any procedure, in a lot of parts of healthcare, in any medication you give, in anything you do, in any interventions you give, there is always a risk of something going wrong. And that's the risk you take sometimes in order to feel better or to get your breathing stabilized or whatever. You can go on and on with the list. And the great thing is there's a lot of expertise and experience behind the providers that are providing care for people. And there's a lot of science as to what is going on behind the scenes into those interventions and those procedures. So that gives you reassurance in intubations and and beyond. So Aside from that soapbox, I really also want to mention, since we're talking about intubation, there's something I need to discuss that I need to at least briefly touch on with this topic, with this subject matter, and probably will go into further sometime during this year, and that's do not intubate and do not resuscitate orders. So I feel like, and you should, but if you don't, but I'm pretty sure people have heard of DNRs, do not resuscitate orders, the advanced directive that people have with them a lot of times. So some patients make their wishes known using an advanced directive, which is a document that clearly indicates that patient's wishes for their health care. Now, some patients choose the do not intubate option, which means that they do not want to be put on a ventilator on a breathing machine to prolong their life. Now, a do not resuscitate advanced directive means that the patient chooses not to have CPR. So we have to always remember in healthcare that the patient is the one in control of this choice. And so they may choose to temporarily change this choice so that they may have surgery that requires a ventilator. But this is a binding legal document that cannot be changed by others under normal circumstances. And so without getting too far into things and and being too much on a soapbox about this, when it comes to end-of-life issues and advanced directives and working in healthcare and working working emergency room, working EMS, working with and alongside those EMS and, and, and all these various different subsets of medicine and healthcare, you're confronted a lot with these dilemmas, these junctures where family members want something done and the patient's wishes are another thing that they want done and it comes into this clash of sorts and then who gets the last say is a whole different thing and so like I said without getting too far into it and too far ahead of myself end of life things are something that people need to discuss knowing a person's advanced directives will always impact the course of treatment for that patient in the hospital setting um, especially when they're critically ill that's what guides us to doing what is right by the patient. What other people and what family members have to say and and what they wish for that patient can come into, again, that clash. And then you're put into this position as a healthcare provider about always advocating for your patient, but also being respectful of the family members involved in the care of that patient. And All I can say for right now, like I said, without going off on a whole different tangent, is that make your wishes known to your loved ones as soon as you can. Do not wait until you are sick. 
do not wait until there is something else going on. Do it now. If you're listening to this and you're in your teens, in your 20s, 30s, whatever, you're in good health, you're in the prime of your life, if you will, talk to your family members, talk to your loved ones about your end of life treatment options that you want, get it written down, get the paperwork, make it a legally binding document, and have that at the ready. I have seen people in the peak of their lives die. And having an advanced directive can sometimes help a little bit with those loved ones who are left behind to make the right decision on behalf of you, to respect your wishes. And if you have those discussions now, it doesn't make that task as daunting when that time comes. Everybody is going to die. That is something nobody can escape, no matter how much the Real Housewives try to, at least with their looks. Everyone's going to age, and everyone's going to die, and that's what's going to be. That's just how it happens. That's how life is. And you have the power to have the voice to tell the people in your life that are important to you how you want your end of life care to be. So please have that discussion. I'm definitely going to touch on more of this in this year about the importance of it because it's a conversation that doesn't have to be one conversation. It can be something that you talk about for years briefly at different times and it can evolve and change and you should talk about it. It'll be something that, like I said, I'll touch on later on this year um, and I'm working on getting some people involved in terms of resources and people that uh, are more versed than I am in the legal side of things. So if you're lost within it, I'm going to try and help you out, but definitely have those conversations. So on that note, real quick story time. One of the trippiest things I've ever encountered with an intubated patient was one that was fully awake. I had a fully awake intubated patient that I was transporting up to the ICU of a particular hospital that was holding his tubing in his hand, fully awake, so that it would give him more slack so he could move his head around to take a look at his surroundings. He at one point pointed out one of the windows because in the hallway towards the ICU, it has these beautiful floor to ceiling windows. It has this great view of the mountains where I was at. And he pointed out there like he was, like it was pretty. I think it was a sunset when I was going up to take him and he was pointing out at it. And it was so weird because there's this guy fully awake holding his tubing, not pulling his tube out, just wanting to make it more comfortable for him. And he would also give me thumbs up or thumbs down to yes or no questions. And then, and then he winked at me when I got him up to the ICU and he transferred over to his ICU bed. To this day, I don't know how I feel about that, but it was definitely one of the more surreal moments I've ever had in taking care of an intubated patient. So on that note, this is the part of the show where I wrap it up for another week by bringing back an old favorite. Yes, yes, yes. It's time for You Got What Stuck Where. Four clues. You tweet at me, at People Are Wild is my handle, with your guess. And if you're most correct first, you win a token of my appreciation in the form of some show swag, if you will. So here we go. Clue number one, the 29-year-old victim was just trying to take a nap when he was suddenly assaulted. 
Clue two, the suspect in question must have had a lock to pick, or no, bone to pick with this particular victim. Clue three, the victim was rushed to the hospital, conscious and responsive, but probably in need of an adult beverage of a similar name of what got stuck in him when everything was all said and done. And clue four, not really a clue, but the victim was stabbed in the head by the object in question and then robbed. Like, what a screwy day to have all of that happen. So there are your four clues. You guess. Tweet at me at People Are Wild with your guess is what I meant. And if you're most correct first, you get some stickers and maybe a thank you card because the Duchess of Sussex says handwritten thank yous are very, very sentimental. So just as a reminder, new episodes are going to be released this year every other week. So get excited for this new year because this podcast, like a nightclub from Weekend Updates, Stefan has everything. Guest co-hosts, interviews that have to be heard to be believed, collaborations better than Vanilla Ice and Naomi Campbell, sequels to previous episodes you thought were dead and gone, and of course, more stories from the ER than ever before. So welcome to the new year believe in the good, stay the course, and remember that we are all better when we have compassion for each other.